Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live at the Etel East Trade Show in rainy Boston on Wednesday, August 8th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. Unfortunately, Scott had a personal conflict and couldn't make it, so you guys are stuck with me. But to make up for it, we have two really exciting guests for this episode. Tom Patterson and Aaron Fujimoto are the founders of Tommy John, uh, a digitally native vertical brand in the apparel and underwear category. Uh, Tom and Erica, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Hey, Thanks Jason. for having us. I am uh, super excited to jump into it. I know you've listened to the podcast before, um, and uh, one of the things we always like to start with is getting a little background from our guests about how they, <laughs> they came into, into uh, your role. So maybe, Tom, we could start with you. Sure. Mine was not a natural transition. I'm a former medical device salesman. I got into underwear, but frustrated with the fabric fit and function of my undershirts, buying fitted suits, darting my dress shirts, and I couldn't figure out why are all the undershirts baggy and boxy. So in 2008, I had this idea and created some undershirts and started selling them online with Aaron. And five months later, the fall of 08 happened. I was laid off my medical sales job, and I decided, you know what? I don't want to be this coulda, woulda, shoulda guy. I have this idea. I want to see how far I can take it. And I cashed up my 401k savings, used my friends at all the credit card companies that financed um, the startup from there. That is a very cool origin story. And it's crazy. If you had just gotten a more casual job, we'd all be walking around with annoying <laughs> T-shirts that don't tuck in. You're totally right. Yes. Uh, say, uh, thank goodness for the, the formal attire the, I mean, at, in the medical sales industry. There would still be a lot of guys tucking their undershirts inside their underwear, which is not a great visual. So No, you know, and I, thanks I, for putting that in my head. Yeah, if I can be part of saving that, I, I feel it's all worthwhile. Very cool. And Aaron, how did you come to the company? So I actually have no business being in the apparel and fashion space either. Um, I transitioned from a career with J.P. Morgan as a financial advisor, and I got the entrepreneurial bug when I was there. And I actually started a small website selling organic products, natural products, skincare, stuff like that. And um, I had a lot of fun with building that initial website and choosing all the products and getting the site launched. And then when it came to the marketing side of it and actually promoting the site, I kind of lost all interest. Um, but, you know, Tom and I had the entrepreneurial bug and um, we're always ideating on what can we do that could be impactful? What are some of our pet peeves in the world? What are some of the things that we hate? And um, this idea of a simple undershirt that would stay tucked in and was fitted to the body was the idea that took off. That is awesome. And uh, because Scott is not here, I get to take advantage and just uh, solve all of my personal problems on the show. Um, some, some listeners will know uh, my wife is in the same industry as I am, so we always have this this uh, dilemma that we, um, uh, you know, both do our day job all day long, and then it's the main thing we have to talk about when we we get home after work. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you two are also married. We are. Uh, so I'm wondering if you have any uh, uh, tips or advice for working with a spouse or how that how that's going for you guys. So Tom and I have always had complementary skill sets, and um, you know he used his medical device sales background as kind of just how to get this thing off of the ground and use his skills to you know pitch to buyers and broke into our first account, Neiman Marcus. And I was much more behind the scenes and kind of more on the operational side. Basically, anything that could be done on a spreadsheet, that was my job. <laughs> that seems like a good division. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have a similar division with my wife. Uh, we're, we're very complimentary because she's talented and I am not. So uh. there's that. Uh, that. That was a shout out to, to my wife and her in-laws if they're listening. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about Tommy John. Uh, can you give us a, a feel for how big a company Tommy John is today? So, so we're a private company, so we don't disclose revenue, but we're 10 years old. We turned 10 years old in April. Um, you know, and, and for us, you know, we not disclosing, but we can tell you we've grown five times since 2014. We just sold our 5 millionth pair of underwear earlier this year. 
And we opened up our first store last fall, and we're going to be opening up our second brick-and-mortar store uh, later on at the end of this month in August in Charlotte, North Carolina. So a lot of exciting things um, that have happened and still to come. Very cool. Um, and in the beginning of the show, I introduced you as a digitally native vertical brand, this uh, mm-hmm. uh, phrase that I think Andy Dunn, Dunn the CEO, founder of Bonobos, invented. Um, usually when we talk about digitally native vertical brands, like rightly or wrongly, most people sort of imagine that their initial model was we're going to sell direct to consumer. Um, yeah, in your case, while I sort of do think you're a digitally native vertical brand because you are all of those things, um, I, I'm not sure that was your original model, right? Like when you first uh, sort of ideated the the product problem and your solution to the problem, did you guys envision that you'd mainly sell them direct or were you thinking about selling through wholesalers? Not at all. It was really built to be a, a wholesale business. And with my background being strategic selling, to get in contact with a department store buyer was very similar to getting in touch with a hospital administrator, a doctor, a surgeon. But I think what we found is, you know, wholesale, as it started to grow, we couldn't grow as quickly as we wanted. So in 2012, we really started focusing more on that direct-to-consumer channel, building a direct relationship with the customer. And I think that was a really critical part because getting the insights and the data on the feedback from the product has really allowed us to continue to innovate and deliver a better product to the customer and I think what we believe at Tommy John, we really focus on fabric fit and function. And having your ear on the floor at a wholesale department store is great feedback from the actual in-store experience, which we did a lot of in the early days and we still do. But we also have that real-time feedback online that's immediate. So we look at the omnichannel experience as a full 360 feedback loop that helps us continue to improve the customer experience, improve product, or we may have some challenges on fit fabric, whatever, but also thinking about what aren't we delivering to the customer that they want, or maybe they don't know that they need yet that we're going to bring and deliver to in the next two or three years. So I think the digitally native vertical brand, I think, I hope that term will go away. I think it will just be, it's a brand. The brands in the 21st century have to be on the channel. They have to be at all channels where the customer is at the end of the day. And I think what you're finding is the digitally native only brands are kind of their their growth is becoming very limited by not having that offline experience with what we talked about. Over 80% of transactions still happen offline at the end of the day. And I don't think it's going to flip in the next couple of years to the opposite. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally agree. And I would, I would at least hope the definition people have in their head. And I suspect this is what Andy originally meant will evolve. Like to me, digitally native doesn't mean you have to sell online. It means you were, born in an era when digital was uh, already an equal part of the ecosystem. So you need to think about how you cater to, to shoppers that are using their digital tools to make purchase decisions and all of those. It's more, to me, that's what the the DM means than necessarily we have to sell everything through a digital channel. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it, you have to be digital today. Yeah. I mean, if you look at a lot of brands, every, digital is the fastest growing channel for pretty much everyone today. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, like, uh, I'm a fancy consultant. And, and so, in you know, a lot of our clients have gone through this phase where they've hired a chief digital officer. Um, and, you know, we are, I chuckle, one of my own boss, my old bosses is the chief digital officer at IBM. I'm like, why does IBM need a chief digital? Like, who's not <laughs> digital at IBM, right? Like, um, and so I do, I think it's one, like, putting digital in front of all this thing is one of those temporary things, right? And Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, so um, I, I do have a point of curiosity, though. So you have this uh, original product insight that, like, hey, you know, the the ubiquitous product everyone's familiar with uh, doesn't doesn't meet a need, and you guys invented uh, a great solution to that product, and then you're you're going to go sell it into a bunch of retailers in the traditional wholesale model. Um, every week I watch Shark Tank, and I'm, and they make it seem like you can't possibly sell a product to a retailer unless you have a shark. Uh, make the introductions for you. Um, and I have a hypothesis that that's, that's sort of BS. Um, so I'm curious, like, did you find, like, having a, a great product, did you find you were able to open doors and have conversations with merchants and sell it in, or was it really difficult? Uh, for sure. I think differentiated product is one thing that buyers look for more than anything else. And so we already had a unique product that really stood out from everyone else. And I think what you see today is a lot of brands are, focusing on differentiating their business model and the product isn't often a 
uh, forethought where the product is really from day one be the been the be all and end all to our to our business. And if we don't innovate on the product and keep improving on it, people will catch up and we'll become stale. And that's something that we've always really prided ourselves on is, you know, how do we not be happy with where we are today, but continue to improve. And whether it's the iPhone five, six, seven, eight, we've also had different iterations of many of our categories and, Mm -hmm. and styles over the last 10 years and building the pipeline out very far, much far further beyond 2018 where we are today is a really important part of building a longevity and lifeline into the business. Very cool. Um, so started the company in 2008, uh, pre- predominantly with a traditional wholesale model in mind. 2012, you really turn on the gas about selling direct, uh, primarily via a website. Um, and then it sounds like uh, last year you opened your first own store. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what the mix is today of like direct sales versus wholesale? Yeah, so we are primarily online. So more than 50% of our our sales are direct online and um, we still have about over a thousand points of distribution through wholesale. Um, our first store is in King of Prussia and that we call it a learning lab because everything about it is just learning. First of all, you know, to sell men's and women's underwear in a retail space and uh, men's underwear specifically, that's a kind of a unique experience for most men. They just haven't had their own personal space in a store where they can go buy men's underwear. So there was a lot of learnings and we knew we needed to make it a new experience. So we have, you know, local brews on tap, um, Prosecco on tap and large sofas. Cause we have a lot of families that like to shop our brand and, um, yeah, we try to make it a real experience to walk through. We have comfort concierge that walk you through and give you a guided tour of all the products, the features and benefits, because our products do pack a lot of features. They're not just kind of standard, you know, pick pick anyone there's you know a lot of people have specific preferences and um we've had a lot of learnings with our first retail space so we will be running um we have plans to open more stores we have our next store opening in south park mall in charlotte north carolina uh after labor day and more stores to come in 2019 very cool. And yeah. I assume that second store was located primarily to be convenient for Scott Wingo. So, Oh, yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Special request. He will appreciate that one. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the King of Prussia Mall, so that, that totally worked for me. I've had yeah. to spend the night in that, that uh, mall many times. Uh, maybe you guys did, too, when you were opening the store. Uh, I, but I am curious, like, the original decision to open that store, was it – um, I mean, what what was the impetus that made you say, "Oh, now's the time"? And and like, what what did you hope to get out of opening your own store? Well, I think you know, to Tom's point earlier, we want to be everywhere that the customer is. And while we have a lot of presence through our wholesale partners, and you know, it gives it gave our brand a lot of prestige and credibility being behind some of these um, wholesale names, but. At the end of the day, we still want to have very close communication with our own customer. We want to own our own data, understand the data, understand how we interact with our customers, um, what our customers expect to see from us. And we take our customer feedback very seriously, whether that be around product, the experience, anything that they want to see from Tommy John. So those conversations are so important to us. Um, Yeah, and we also wanted to be able to control the brand experience because at the end of the day, it's underwear, so we try to make it as fun as possible. And you know, we the only way to get that is either through our website or in our own retail setting where we can interact directly with the customers. Yeah, and I think too the other things that we looked at is obviously lease availability isn't obviously ideal, so you have to look at a handful of locations and also proximity to New York City, so we could have a lot of presence from our team at headquarters to really, like Aaron talked about, a learning lab. How do we have different teams there? testing different user experiences for the comfort concierge team to questions that we asked to how the store is merchandised. Um, not really to see how good the beer tastes on tap. Um, that's not really an important <laughs> part of that. Whose job but, is that? Is that your job? It was, it was early on, but not so much anymore. Ah. But um, so, yeah, I think our criteria for stores is a little different too. And the fact that we're for the most part a self-funded business, we really have to be profitable very quickly in a market and, Ideally, New York City would have been the market that we opened up our store, selfishly because we're based in New York City, but New York City rents are very expensive, and we really think our customers are all over the U.S., and Philadelphia is a great representation of the U.S. in general. 
versus a coastal city like New York or San Francisco where buying behavior and tourist concentration may be a little different. Very cool. And you, you did mention early on that um, being in the wholesale channel helped, helped you get a lot of feedback from customers. You primarily had a lot of prestige retailers, so I, I imagine that added some prestige yeah. to the brand. Um, but now that you have your own store, I'm assuming uh, that you like the feedback loop is much faster and uh, presumably richer. For sure. I mean, early on, you know, the first two years, I was pretty much in stores, Aaron, Aaron at times, but I went to over 90 Nordstrom stores. Aaron was busy paying all the bills yeah. while you were just doing <laughs> around. She was very stores. busy in the spreadsheets. Yeah, I was just checking Facebook and stores. But <laughs> going to 90 stores over a year period and spending full days on the, in the store, talking to salespeople, uh, training the sales teams, talking to customers was vital to really where we are today because, like, what do you like about this? What would you change? And a lot of our product ideas were inspired from that feedback from customers. So uh, if anything, and I still think you can learn more in a store in 10 minutes than anywhere else today. And that customer face-to-face experience is really valuable. So if anything, we really push our team being in stores, our store more often, because you can't, it's not all data-driven. A lot of it, you just can't interpret. We don't believe um, without that experience. Oh, for sure. And it, it, uh, well, there are tools, but for the most part, like the online experience, the customers you have a best relationship with online are the ones that had the best and worst experiences. So like they had some horrible problem and they called customer service. You get to know those customers pretty well. Yeah. And the, your most loyal customers that proactively reach out, you might hear from, but the overwhelming majority of those customers in the middle, the online experience is pretty anonymous, right? And so, you know, it, it, it's harder, um, like there are tools to kind of, you know, look at the analytics and watch how people are behaving. But but I'm 100% with you uh, being able to stand in a store and see how, you know, how people are interacting with mannequins, what, how many products they're taking into the dressing room, you know, are they asking for help from a salesperson? Are they not? All those sorts of things. There's a, a rich source of insight that... Uh, seems much easier to get out of the physical environment than the digital environment at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, I am curious, um, just uh, from a boring technical stack uh, thing, uh, so we have a direct website. I think you guys are on Shopify, if I'm... Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So so you're on Shopify. You're having a really successful direct-to-consumer channel via e-commerce. Now you open your first store and you need a point-of-sale system and an inventory system for that store... Um, did you like try to pick some omni-channel things? Like, did you extend the Shopify ecosystem to the store or did you just like, how did you? That's a tough one. Uh, that's something that we're still working through. And that's why we call our King of Prussia store a learning lab, because these are all the Kings and it's, it's a big, you know, I, I think many brands are probably struggling with this, how to integrate online with the retail environment. And, um, it's a real problem. So I, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity, but yeah, we're, we're definitely looking into it. It's hot on our radar and just to integrate that customer experience. So it's seamless because so many of our customers do go back and forth from retail to online and back again. So, you know, we just launched a loyalty program. So how do we, you know, get them engaged on loyalty to be able to shop in any environment and take advantage of those parks? Uh, and I, I, I actually want to come back to the loyalty program. Um, but uh, one question on the um, the decision to open a store that had physical inventory in it. Like you see some new brands are opening the uh, showrooms or uh, uh, guide shops from yeah. Bonobos. Uh, Nordstrom, who I think is a, a big partner of yours, now has some, some light inventory stores in L.A., the Nordstrom local stores. Did you guys think about that model at all, and how did you decide? Of course, to, yeah, we to do the we did think deal? about it, and um, we did some focus groups before we did our actual opening store opening, and the focus groups loud and clear said that they wanted to walk out of the store with product. And, you know, it's, I think it's that instant gratification of shopping in retail. You want to touch and feel the product. You want to see, is this going to fit? You know, you maybe want to try things on and you want to walk out of the store with it. Right. And the great thing is, is that if there were anything that was missing in the store, we could ship it to them overnight from our website. So we have the benefit of being able to fulfill that way. But at the end of the day, the customer still wanted to walk out with a bag in hand. 
Okay. Uh, the and I there's something we haven't talked about yet, but uh, I now realize we need to bring it up so that I can ask my next question. Uh, you and you sort of alluded to it, Aaron. Um, you guys only recently expanded into women's apparel as well. Is that yes. do I have that right? Um, so we'll come back to the women's apparel, but I'm I, I just want to get the sequence right. Did you decide to open a store and then later added women's, or did you know you were going to have men's and women's before you opened the store, or did it happen at the same time? So I think we wanted to open up a store earlier. It ended up being pushed later, but we knew women's would be coming down the pipe and be part of the brand and be launching shortly after. So a lot of when we opened up the store, we wanted we didn't want to lose sight of having men's and women's in there at some point someday making sure it's a unisex experience. And the great thing is, is we had a lot of women already in the store buying for their husbands or sons for gifting. And we were able to get feedback and really understand what was, you know, important to them in the shopping experience. Selfishly, to your point earlier, I think having um, a guide shop where it's really very limited inventory is much easier on a business. Yeah. It's much less of an inventory burden. And it, I think m- most brands would be crazy not to do that if their customers are asking for it. But I think we've always believed in the customer is always right, and the customer really guides you towards the right experience. And but who knows? We could be talking two or three years from now, saying, you know what? We actually have virtual showrooms. People don't need to try on underwear and t-shirts and socks. They can just come in, touch, feel, and they can wait two or three days to receive it online um, in the mail. So we're always open to change. But I think what we've seen is this: the the velocity of change today in our space. It's so much quicker than it was two or three years ago. And I think that's the challenge with a lot of systems is a lot of brands invest in systems arguably too early. And then they're outdated very quickly where we would rather, not painfully, but learn as we go before we make a big investment. Because first we need to understand what stores means to our business at a larger scale than one or two stores to really justify some of these bigger investments that are more infrastructure driven. Yeah, and as... As far as our stores, we have to learn very quickly and react very quickly because our goal is, um, well, our stores have to be profitable. Everything we do in our business, we're not heavily funded. We're not uh, heavily VC-backed. So we have to make our retail experience profitable as soon as possible. So if we see that pivot, if we see the customers are responding in a certain way, we lean in very quickly. And our entire team is on board with that strategy of being nimble, maintaining nimbleness, always learning, right? Because even the environment's changing so quick that things that we knew six months ago, let alone a year ago, are completely changed. Like we have to constantly be testing and relearning and uh, revisiting old things that didn't work, you know, six months ago because maybe they work now and um, it means it leads to higher revenue. Yeah, and that that is a great insight that's really hard to internalize, right? Because, it, you know... Uh, you think about all the clients I walk into, and the most common reason that a client doesn't want to try something is, oh, we tried that once, <laughs> right? Like, you know, back in the, the day, right. someone tried that, and, like, you know, success is about having the right idea, but also at the right time. And to your point, the customer expectation is always moving. So just because something wasn't right in 1990, yeah. by no means means it's not right today. Yeah, we may have 50 stores, and we'll still be calling them learning labs. You know, it may still be changing that quickly where we don't have our formula figured out yet. <laughs> yeah, I do. So I have a personal wish for you. Uh, having worked with a bunch of retailers that start opening stores, the first store is a huge disruption to the business, right? Because everybody's got a day job, and now they have to put their day jobs aside, and I'll get in the car and drive from New York to Philadelphia, and you're, like, you know, there with a the saw, cutting store fixtures and fig- figuring everything out. Um, and, uh, you know, the business kind of stops while you open that store, uh, usually by that 10th store, it's like, oh, we have a system now, right? Like <laughs> yeah. I pick up the phone and I call I call my store guy and I say, let's open a store in this market. And, you know, there's dedicated employees and a process and it becomes much less disruptive to the to the business. So I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that you're able to short circuit that a little. Like the second store is st- still probably pretty bespoke, but hopefully as you continue to grow in 2019, you're able to to have it not be such a big disruption. Uh, yeah. A great point. I think the second store has been easier than the first, just based off of simple things that we learned, you know? Yeah, we were uh, we did a show recently um, with the founders of Beta, which is this great brick-and-mortar um, 
uh, concept that started out on the on the West Coast. It's in uh, it's a shopping shop in Macy's in New York now, so you um, you can check it out. But he was talking about like, oh, our first store, uh, the fixtures cost a fortune, and they were all made out of like exotic woods. <laughs> and he's like, the, the second store, the fixtures looked exactly the same, but they were laminated. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. you learn yeah. fabrication really quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and those are those are just kind of the the common evolutions. Um, you you mentioned that hey, even when we we're just a men's brand, like we still had to cater to female shoppers. Mm-hmm. That to me is always one of the funny insights uh, when you're talking to people about opening a men's store. Like, and I'll, I'll make a joke about where the man chair is going to go, right? Like, and you know, the man chair is this metaphor for where the dude sits down while the woman shops. And they're like, we're not going to have a man chair. We're a we're a man store. And I'm like, yeah, but you still like. You are still going to have couples walk in, and the guy's going to plop down on the chair while the wife goes shopping for yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and so, I was curious on your couches if they were man couches or whether they're they're multi gender couches. It sounds like well, they, everyone couches. Yeah, they've definitely right? been. Mul- I mean, sit down and have a beer couch. <laughs> I mean, I remember Black Friday morning at like ten a.m. We had some. 85-year-old woman come in and sat down on the couch and drank two beers while, while her grandson was shopping or her son was shopping. So uh, we haven't had to kick anyone off the couch because it was overcrowded. But, yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it just allows people to rest and there's no pressure for their spouse to hurry up and buy your stuff so I can go to this store. They can be on their phone and it's more of a comfortable experience. And I think that's one thing we've really tried to do is because we're a brand based on comfort, having comfortable furniture, comfortable sense when you walk in the store we really try to think about the entire user experience um, from the moment you walk in to every second that you're in the store to the moment that you walk out very cool um let's talk about uh, the decision to move into to women's wear for a second like you you built a a, a well-known highly regarded brand in men's wear like has has that translated to women like do women you know have a preconceived notion of your fit and quality based on the, the men's brand, or are you having to start from scratch there? Yeah, those were, yeah. so the launch was in April of this year, and we sold out of six months of product in our first six weeks. So we were out of stock for about two months, and we're now slowly getting back into stock. So you can say it greatly exceeded our expectations. You know, there's a lot of, uh, we knew that we'd have a strong customer following just with our existing customer base. Like Tom said, we have a a pretty large built-in female customer uh, customer base already who's shopping for her significant other or family member on um who's a guy, but, you know, we, we knew that that was going to be there, but overwhelmingly, I think, you know, people just gravitated to the brand. I think we built a reputation much stronger than we knew known for comfort and function and innovation and really giving the customer what they want and delivering on our promises. And I would add that I think about five years ago, we, we started hearing, when are you going to make women's and every year up until last year, it seemed like it would just become louder and louder from from women saying, you know, I want to be as comfortable as my husband is. And I think Aaron talks about someone posted on Facebook that this is what it's come to. I have to wear my husband's boxer briefs because nothing is as comfortable. So that's when I think it really made sense for us. We're like, all right, now's the time to do it and, and enter the category and bring deliver comfort in a new and unique way that we believe didn't exist before in the women's category. I feel like if you're going to really deliver on that brand promise, you're going to have to address shoes because it's like, that seems like the biggest disparity to me in men's and women's comfort in the world. But uh, For women's high heels and yeah, stilettos exactly. and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, women totally get screwed on the shoe comfort thing. I'm, I'm utterly convinced. Uh, but uh, and I, I guess one more point on the women's brand that's interesting to me, like a lot of times you have a successful men's brand, they expand into women by inventing a new brand. And I, I actually mm-hmm. think... Even Bonobos did that. Like they invented a, a different brand for women right. that ultimately spun off. Uh, you guys decided to leverage the brand and sort of ex- expand it. Like, was that something consciously that you did, or was it just like, yeah? I mean, it, it was really never a thought to create a different brand when the brands that we admire, whether it's Patagonia or Nike or Lululemon, um, they never created another brand. You know, we've always believed that comfort doesn't matter if you're a man or man or woman. Everyone deserves to be comfortable in their underwear. And it's really hard to build a brand and to build another brand 
Um, I think it's been very few and far between where brands have spun off and created a male and female brand that have been able to scale to the same levels. Where for us, we felt there were so many synergies in the men's business with the brand awareness and recognition and distribution that we have um, that we wanted. It it really, I don't even think we thought about it. It came up a couple of times, but. No, I mean, we definitely did our due diligence and, you know, early focus groups that we spoke, you know, spoke with various women throughout the country and just, you know, ask them about the brand name, if that was going to be a turnoff in any way, or would that steer them away from shopping, you know, for women's underwear with a brand called Tommy John. And, um, if anything, it was, it was funny. It wasn't a reaction that I expected, but they said they actually felt like there'd be more innovation because they feel like men's clothing in general gets more innovation. Um, and it has generally has more technical and smart properties to the fabrics. So if anything, they, they liked it. Huh, that's totally fascinating. Yeah. It's almost the inverse. You, you, we're seeing that sometimes in, uh, in beauty, like where men want want men's products, but they want them from a company women's that makes company. women's companies because they perceive there's a lot more R&D yeah, behind interesting. The, the products. Um, I do want to pivot for a minute. We teased loyalty earlier. Um and that, like, superficially, I go, I, you know, when I saw that you offered a loyalty program, I have to be honest, I'm like, <laughs> huh, what's the frequency of purchase of, of underwear? Like, ha- you know, is like it do- you don't have a huge breadth of products to solve a bunch of different problems for the customer. What what was the thought process behind loyalty and, and how how is it going so far? Well, repeat is such a huge component of our business. So, you know, starting out in underwear, it's we want people to fill their drawer with Tommy John underwear. So and re- you have to replenish your underwear. You have to replace them every so often. And uh, we want it to we want to be the brand that people go to. So that's always been a huge component to our business model. And um, it's it will always continue to be. So it's very important to us that customers have a reason to come back and that we reward our best customers for being loyal to our brand. Uh, And one of the things I noticed about the loyalty program is it's uh, not exclusively rewarding people for purchasing the product. So it feels like there's multiple triggers that can earn earn points. So it does Mm -hmm. seem like you're you're trying to entice people to engage with the brand. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the interaction is important. We want to encourage people to also write reviews, um, you know, share just who they are, you know, I mean, and, and just kind of start engaging and, and, you know, there's many different things that we can just kind of give incentivize small points for <laughs> just to get that initial engagement and kind of have them start navigating through the platform as well. Cause the more they use it, then they'll, kind of know where it is and how to get back to it, check their points, how to redeem points. So it allows them to get familiar with the system as well. Nice. Uh, the a question I have to ask on Scott's behalf uh, is about funding, right? So Scott's a serial entrepreneur. He's, you know, taken several companies uh, or a company public and been very successful. Uh, and so he, you know, likes to talk a lot about uh, the sort of VC uh, legacy for companies. And I, you mentioned uh, that you hadn't raised any money through a traditional VC. Was that an overt strategy? Well, we, we haven't. So, so starting in 2008, during the recession, I think we we started out where we had to sell a dollar for more than a dollar versus selling a dollar for, say, 35 cents to build top line. But we did raise a small round of funding of $1.5 million in 2012. But what was really important to Aaron and myself was to maintain control of the company and by having slower, arguably slower, more profitable growth, we're not chasing a valuation that we have to live up to and the pressures that, that, that come around that where we really put our pressure on ourselves to grow the brand the right way and built for longevity and quality and duration. So our approach has been, a little, has been very different, I think, especially from a lot of the brands that you've seen emerge in just the categories in general the last three or four years where you can grow in two or three years, maybe what's taken us to grow 10 years, but is it sustainable growth? Is it profitable growth? Can they become profitable at some point? And a lot of that is still to be determined where it's a lot easier to spend someone else's money when it's not yours. So we talked about earlier, we have to be really thoughtful with our money, whether it's stores, we have to look at stores differently because they need to make money. Um, when we look at building the products, they, you know, they, they have to be able to support the infrastructure that we need to scale um, over time. So we don't have a lot of pressure to grow, and um, we we do like pressure to grow, but it really comes from ourselves, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything else to 
Yeah. Dad. It it is interesting. It annoys me a little bit. Like one of the challenges with the VC model is uh, once you take that institutional money, um, the the successful outcome they're looking for is a billion dollar exit, right? And so, like, there really is no happy medium where you're a a profitable company that's you know uh, sustaining a bunch of employees, making customers happy, and you're you're you know even half a billion dollars a year in revenue. You're you're still not a success to your your institutional investors, um, and to your point, what we've seen a lot in these uh, digitally native vertical brands is uh, you you build a brand promise that appeals to a certain market size, right? And depending on your product and the promise and the <clears throat> category, that could be you know a hundred million dollars a year worth of business, or it could be ten million dollars a year worth of business, or you know there's some sort of organic cap that your brand positioning earns you. Um, but if you're venture funded, once you hit that cap, you have to keep buying more customers. And that's usually the point when you start seeing people do really stupid things. Um, like, uh, you know, uh, these crazy customer acquisition costs. And, you know, I think there have been some companies that went public recently where they're paying like 50 or $100 a customer to <laughs> to acquire customers. And it just seems like... like What's the payback on that, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, as a business, we don't we don't look to get, enter a category unless it has a, a replenishment, non seasonal component to it. So whether it's underwear or t shirts or loungewear, it's something that people will need to continue to buy throughout their life. Where, where some of these products have a repeat within five or ten years. So we know that there's going to be a repeat revenue stream coming in. So the customer churn isn't as high as some other categories. We also don't have tech valuation. There's, a, I think there's been a lot of tech valuations in this space where it's not an app. It's not a software. It's actually a product. So I think they're coming back to reality now with how the, the valuations of the companies in our space are being valuated. Um, but it's been painful valuations or down rounds for a lot of the companies that we've seen in this space where we've seen a lot of brands come and go over 10 years. Mm-hmm. You, you know, So um, I just think you know every founder makes a different decision for what they think is best to grow their business. And they try to make the best decision they can with the information that they have at that time. But I think what I've learned through a lot of conversations, a lot of people regret taking so much money early on. And if anything, if they could do it over again, they would have grown slower and maintained control of the company and tried to figure out how big the business model was and how big the revenue opportunity was within that category, where I think a lot of them have just been overvalued. The market size isn't as big as they think it is. And then on top of that, they have a lot of pressure to make it bigger than it probably is going to be ever. Where, you know, underwear is actually one of the few, obviously we sell many products outside of underwear, but underwear is actually the only category in the last three years that has continued to grow, especially in the premium space. So um, underwear doesn't last for decades. Yeah. We've actually found with some of our customers it does, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> but there is, there again, that whether it's underwear, T-shirt, socks, there's that repeat component, which is really critical to our business. But that was not white space that we identified before we built this business by any means. It's just something, you know, this business was created off from a problem that I wanted to solve. And we've really taken that problem-solving mindset to other categories and used the learnings that we have um, to continue to grow, but also minimize the level of risk in, in putting the business in a position where we may go out of business or we may need to raise a large amount of funding to have a lifeline. We've never wanted to put the, the business in a position where we were exposed to something like that. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't blame you. Um, I also have a perception that early on, one of the things that you used to help build your brand was some influencer marketing, right? And uh, in, my, in my head, I feel like I've seen... Uh, maybe too many pictures of Kevin Hart naked. Is that? Is that <laughs> I mean, I don't know where you're seeing naked pictures of Kevin. I haven't, <laughs> se- I haven't seen those. <laughs> uh, Semi naked. Sorry. You know, we've been comfortable lounge. We, uh, we've been fortunate. You know, a handful of influencers. Howard Stern ended up getting our product and talked about how he's never been so comfortable. But it was after he tried the product. We didn't even pay him. We're we're now a paid advertiser on the show. But Kevin ended up posting on Instagram three or four years ago. And someone in our office said, Tom, Aaron, check this out. Kevin Hart's dancing around in her underwear with his shirt off, not naked. And he saw his underwear waistband. And I knew someone who could connect me to Kevin. I sent him a note, said, hey, I'm a huge fan. Congrats on all your success. 
here's some more underwear. And a couple of years ago, he was in New York and said, hey, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the brand. Can I come meet with you? I just want to learn more about the company. And I just love everything you guys are doing. So when we look at influencers, um, we're not paying people to promote our product. Actually, Kevin paid us through, through uh, a meaningful investment in the brand because he believed in it so much. And as a result, you know, Kevin has 100 million social media followers, um, the, the most successful comedy tour of all time, and is just this honest, hardworking, funny, relatable guy that's um, also very thoughtful in a lot of things that he's done. And we just had a lot in common. He's, he's like, Tom, it's taken me 18 years to be, become an overnight success. People think I am this overnight success, but they don't understand I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. And I think the way we had built Tommy John, we had a lot of empathy for each other and the way he's built his business in Hollywood, not having any connections in, in Hollywood, us not having any connections in the fashion retail space. And it's just been an amazing um, partnership for us. And we're actually launching our second Kevin Hart 2.0 line this October um, this October with him, Very which cool. is really exciting. And I, I definitely want to congratulate you on deciding to put pictures of Kevin in underwear on your website and not Howard. <laughs> I, I'm glad he enjoys the product. I'm just saying probably a good aesthetic decision. Um, the I am curious, though, like there. So I, I totally get that. And that's very different than paying a Kardashian to, to tweet about your product. Yeah. Um, and in my mind, that's the sort of paid mega influencer tactic has kind of played out. I think customers see through that and know that that's not authentic. Um, mm. But what we're starting to see emerge a lot is these sort of um, micro-influencer campaigns where brands partner with non-celebrities that have a, you know, a niche following in a, a particular category. Like, has, Have you guys looked into that at all? Is that something you could see being part of the the marketing mix at some point? I'd say never say never. Um, more than anything, when we pick any of our partnerships, it's usually comes from a place of authenticity. So it's an authentic partner, somebody who's a true fan of the brand or we're a fan of them and we see a, a great alignment and alignment in our values in general. Um, that was what was so great about Kevin is that he came to us and just said, I'm a fan of your brand. How can I help? how can I help you? Right. And that was his approach. And, um, you know, we were so stuck in our head saying, well, you know, we don't, we're not really looking to endorse anybody. We can't afford to endorse anybody. We can't afford to endorse Kevin Hart, you know? Um, and he's had to really just shout loud, like, look, I'm trying to give you my money. Like, <laughs> take my money and I want to help. I want to help you guys grow, you know? And, and, um, we were kind of thrown back by that thinking, wow, this guy's, real deal. He actually just loves the brand. He's a fan. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to be a part of the growth. And those are the types of partnerships that we would look for. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so it unfortunately wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about the, the book resellers in Seattle, uh, Amazon, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, it's interesting. It was a number of years ago, Amazon sort of uh, announced this, like, you know, shift to get into the apparel business. And and back then, there were a bunch of people predicting, like, oh, apparel's way different than their other categories. They're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward about four years, and it seems like the evidence is they're very successful in apparel, but it's a specific subset of apparel. Like, it, it is the basic need stuff more so than the, the luxury fashion stuff at the moment, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not betting against them. The jury's out in the long run on the, the fashion stuff. But I'm curious... Do, is that scary to you because you're in the the underwear category, which kind of sounds like basic needs? Or is the fact that you're a, a, a premium differentiated product like really put you like insulate you from some of that success that Amazon's having? Or are they a potential partner? Um, I think it comes down to, you know, of course they're a threat just because of their sheer size, right? And and when you talk about market share, anybody that's competing on market share and taking that that away is um potential threat. But I guess where we don't get so scared is that it's not necessarily what you do, it's how you do it. And I think we've 
you know, prove to our customers and we continue to prove to customers that we're here as a loyal brand. Um, we have a strong line of communication with them. We're here to serve them. And we really listen and take into consideration what they want. And I don't know. I don't know if Amazon, if anyone's really been able to talk to Amazon and tell them what they want, um, you know, or if they have a <laughs> open ear to listen and, and necessarily hear that. So, I, I think what we've built as a brand and how we continue to communicate and engage with our customers is what separates us. Yeah, I think the relationship is really important. You know, loyalty is something that we want to offer. We really want to have a deeper, more meaningful experience. And, you know, there's restrictions and guidelines that you have to work within within Amazon that we just don't feel are um, they just, they're just not fit for us at this time. But, you know, never say never. Yeah. You know, things change and Models models evolve, so I think we're open to the future. But right now, at this point in time, it just doesn't make sense for us. Mm-hmm. Got you. And uh, related question, uh, like when you talk about the big marketplaces one uh, for a brand, one of the issues that always comes up is authenticity and counterfeit products. Like, have you guys run into that at all? Is that something you're having to battle? With uh, in terms of yeah, in terms of people knocking off your product or selling, oh, of course, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> I think there's been a lot of brands that have reinvented underwear since after we launched, but I think it goes back to you just we we actually embrace competition. Competition only makes you better. Um, but we, like we, I think what we're always thinking about is what what are different types of partnerships? Whether it's Kevin Hart um, doing unique things with Nordstrom, how do we deliver value to our wholesale partners? How do we deliver value to our existing customers? And a lot of it comes back to the product and continuing to innovate and evolve as a brand. And you know, if, and also I think what we've really enjoyed as as we've grown is we have a unique way of talking about a very uncomfortable topic, underwear, in a more funny, in a funnier, more relatable way. And that's something I think brands need to continue to do is just I think authenticity is a very overused word. Everyone's talking about it. But you have to be yourself. And, you know, it took us seven or eight years to really figure out what our tone of voice is and really get it out there in a clean, concise way. And that's really when the brand, I think, became much stronger and the relationship with our customers has and is continuing to become much deeper. And that's just something you can't get on a lot of other platforms that resell your product. And I think the brands that can figure that out, maintain and evolve it are the ones that will be able to continue to outrun the competition. Nice. I, uh, I think that it's going to be fascinating to see how that continues to evolve. Um, and that brings me to sort of my last question. Uh, if you take your, your um, sort of today hat off and think about how the industry is going to continue to evolve over the next four or five years, um, do you have a sense for how different things are going to be? Like, are we, you know, is everyone going to be a brand selling direct in five years? Are, you know, you know, is our, is the shopping experience going to be wildly different? Do you have any guesses for for the, the future of commerce? I mean, it, it, no. <laughs> I mean, if you told me we're going to be here five years ago, I'd be like, maybe, okay. I mean, I think a lot, there's so much out there right now, and I think there's so many things that have came into the market too early, whether it's like AI or chatbots. Um, there, and I think we're still, we're not one of the earliest adopters. You know, like Apple's never first to market. They kind of sit back and learn from the learnings from other brands. Um, that's really how we've l- looked at the market in general. Let the bigger brands who have bigger budgets, more f- money or funding, let them spend money trying to figure it out. And we'll come in and at some point learn off that. But we're not really in the space of being the earliest of adopters unless we really feel strongly about it. And I think it's been more on the physical product side that we've taken that approach, but as far as the systems and technologies, we're not selling ourselves as a tech company. You have to be a tech company today to be in retail, especially as a digitally native vertical brand. But I don't think, um, I don't know. It's, yeah, I, I, it's a great question. It's, I, of course, don't, <laughs> um, very hard to tell where it's going to go. I, I do see this shift, you know, every, 
uh, there's a lot of the digitally native brands, as we talked about, you know, going into retail, going into brick and mortar. So obviously that's a shift. There's an opportunity there, right, where some of these um, big chain retailers just haven't evolved, right? And they're not evolving their experience, they're not evolving their product, and they're not evolving with the time. So it is a great opportunity for brands to get into that space and try to do something with it. I think there's going to be a handful of brands that do it really well, and there's going to be a handful that kind of burn out, right? Because again, like we've learned just with one store, how extremely hard it is to make make that store profitable and make sure that it's a replicable model that you can continue to roll out over and over again. Right. And, um, that's our plan for going forward is, you know, 2019 definitely expect to see more stores, but you know, it's because we're fine tuning that model and we're getting closer and closer and we know exactly how to, um, turn these stores out and make them profitable. And I think that's going to be the future is figuring out, how to do these omni-channel approaches in a scalable way, right? Because if it's not scalable, if it's not profitable, they're all going to burn out and you just can't keep running at that rate. So um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a more exciting time to be in this space than today, just with how much change and big companies not being able to change quick enough, which is creating opportunity for brands like us to take more meaningful market share. But, you know, we may be in that position someday where we're too slow to change. And that's something that I think continues to drive us is how do we maintain our flexibility and nimbleness at a bigger and bigger scale. And I think that's the challenge that a lot of brands run into. And we embrace that because it's a, it, it's a great problem to have at the end of the day, because it means you've done a lot of things right. But you have to stay on top of all the changes so quickly, right? Since we've spoken in the last 40 minutes, there's probably been all kinds of stuff that's being talked about in our space <laughs> that now I'm already behind. You're on way because, behind yeah, on. Exactly. Been doing this for so long. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, no, I think that's a great point. And it's funny. Uh, I, you know, one of, one of the clients I get to work with is the largest retailer in the world, Walmart. And it's funny, but the guys that have been there a long time tell this story about how they remember being the young, scrappy upstart. And they're like, you know, we always thought of ourselves as David trying to figure out how we were going to compete with these big Goliaths like Sears and Target and, uh, uh, Kmart. And they're like, we went to bed one night and we woke up and we're like, oh, no, we're Goliath now, right? Yeah. Only there's way more Davids and they have way better slingshots, right? And so, I mean, yeah. that's, that's the evolution of everyone. And it's, it's, it's wise to, to be aware of that. Uh, and that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up our allotted time. As always, we encourage our listeners to jump on uh, Facebook and continue the dialogue there. Of course, if you enjoyed today's show, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, Tom and Aaron, I'm assuming you guys are on the, the usual social channels. Can we find uh, Where can we find you guys online? Yeah, Instagram, Facebook. We're um, at Tommy John Ware is our handle and TommyJohn.com. You can find everything there. Uh, thank you guys very much for the time. Really enjoyed the chat. Likewise. Thank you. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.